Hello, you're listening to the Witness Interview Podcast. I'm your host for this week, Ben Keane, and this is part one of a two-part interview I'm taking with a person whom I admire, and I'm lucky enough to have worked with a number of times, Moira Finucane. Now, Moira is best known for her burlesque show, Glory Box, formerly known as The Burlesque Hour, but she, as co-director of the company, Finucane Smith, the other co-director being Jackie Smith, has toured a number of highly diverse shows around the globe. Greetings. So you're a performer. I am indeed. A writer, (laughs) a director, a producer, all these things. It's all true. I am all of those things. It is true to say you work a lot with burlesque. Yep. And when you first started out, my first question you see. Yes. How important were queer spaces in allowing you to really establish your craft? I guess I have thought a lot about queer spaces over the years. And I think one of the exciting things about queer spaces is that they trouble the gays. So, which, you know, <laughs> no double entendre implied there or intended. But I've, I've worked with a lot of people who identify as queer and don't identify as queer, but who have had a really significant performance life in queer and underground spaces. So... I trained as an environmental scientist and I worked in that area for quite a few years. I worked in environmental law and environmental world heritage protection, a lot of lobbying, a lot of federal activity. And then I worked in gender and development for about a decade. And while I was working in that area, I became attracted to performance. And I was always, I I guess I was always attracted to performance or stories that were epic. Mm, So when I was a mm. kid, I was equally attracted to fairy tales and the lives of saints. And (laughs) and both of the fairy tales and the lives of saints share epic consequences for Mm. belief. So track forward many years and I I ended up performing in the queer and underground scene of Melbourne. And that was around, that was, I guess, in the mid nineties, there was a lot of performance around HIV activism. So Mm. ACT UP. And there were also these performance art parties. There were these really queer politicized performance art parties. There was opera, Mm. there were monologues. They went on for hours and hours and hours (laughs) and sometimes all night. And there was the good, the bad and the ugly. Mm. Um, but I think I think in those environments, because I used to go to all kinds of nightclubs in those days, chases and all kinds of nightclubs, mm. but those environments, those queer and underground places, who you were performing for wasn't assumed. Who you uh. were, what gender you were, mm. who was meant to be watching you, who, if anybody owned your sexuality, was really unclear and because of that, I think it created this incredible disturbance. They weren't discrimination-free places. They weren't places mm. where nothing bad ever happened. Mm. But they were places where who owned what was really unclear. Uh, and yep. that was that provided a lot of freedom, and particularly for women, but not just for women. I mean, a lot of amazing queer gay men were performing mm. and transgender artists were performing and drag queens you know, owned the scene yeah, in so course, many yeah. ways. Yeah. And they were doing incredible stuff too. At the time, I remember thinking, I was in Three Faces watching yet another incredible drag show and thinking, is drag the last 
popular variety left in the world. Mm. Is, is this, you know, in the olden days, people used to go to variety shows every week. But in the mid-90s, the only live variety that people went to every week were drag shows. Mm. And I thought, is this the last variety, the last living variety on the planet? Is this... Is this what Music Hall has evolved into? And drag queens, a lot of them had never even heard of Music Hall. But for me, I was watching, and I don't have a background in performance, so I was just watching this living, breathing, live, visceral performance practice that was alive and that Mm -hmm. was thriving and flourishing in the underground. And it was kind of, it was the evolution of the political side of mm. music hall, of burlesque, of cabaret, and it was all mm. happening. So, yeah, that's oh. kind of where I started. No, I think that's really fascinating. And to kind of follow up that, you kind of mentioned music hall and yeah. kind of the idea of is it dead or, you know, and all your work seems to kind of call back in some way to this kind of 1930s mm. flapper girl I mean, aesthetically, politically, what you're doing, of course, is so much more oh, contemporary, I should say. But certainly, aesthetically, that's such a strong draw for you in so many of your shows, like Glory Box, The Rapture. There's always something referential to that aesthetic. And is that just because that's when this kind of work was being done and really popular and uh, part of the mainstream? Or is there kind of another part of it that's really informing your decision to use that aesthetic or implement it in some way? I guess there's two things there. It's probably almost all of my artistic decisions are instinctual. Mm. So I don't develop a theory around something and then move towards it. I just move towards it because I have a visceral response to it. Mm. So when I was when I was at high school, even though I was encouraged to do English literature, I, I decided to do science because as I arrogantly said to one of my English teachers, I can I can learn about literature later. It's really hard to learn about science <laughs> <laughs> on your own. And I was right. It is really hard to learn mm, about mm, physics on mm, your own, mm, just totally. picking up a book, yeah. whereas you can pick up Wuthering Heights and, you know. Well, it's designed, to be, <laughs> it's designed to be accessible, to well, be read. that's right. Yeah. So you, you don't necessarily need to go to a theory class to investigate Wuthering mm, Heights, mm. but it's really hard to investigate chemistry on your own. Yeah. Anyway, but, you know, they just looked at me like, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, so I, d- I discovered things like that much later in my life, in my 30s. So when, when I think about art, what I think about is what raises the hair on your arms. Mm. And for me... You know that use of the word Catholic in the olden days, it meant eclectic. To have Mm. a Catholic sensibility meant that you had an incredibly eclectic sensibility. And and my love of art is very Catholic. It's very eclectic. Whatever raises the hair on my arms, I'm into. Is that fairy tales? Is it burlesque? Is it a pop song? Is it opera? And I remember when I first started to perform, I used to hang out with transgressive avant-garde artists and, and they were completely dismissive of populist work. Oh, you know, opera, just <laughs> the level of eye-rolling around, just even around the word opera. Whereas me, you know, I'd never seen a live opera before and I went along to an opera with one of my gay boyfriends and he was he, he didn't see the surtitles for the first hour. So he made up this epic story in his own head, which was every bit as silly and fantastic as what was happening in front of us but we were both gripped Mm. how could you not be gripped you know it was transcendent it was phenomenal so 
I've always been attracted to entertainment and now I'm a more seasoned performer. I think I'm attracted to it because entertainment is like an electricity cable. Mm. It can take power anywhere. Mm. So if you are entertaining people, if you are moving through their rib cages and moving through their social and political barriers right into the viscera of their humanity, then you can go anywhere with them. Mm. Whereas for me personally, and particularly coming from a political background, where my job was to take a political theme, mm. was it Kakadu, was it old growth forests in Tasmania, a whole range of things. I was an international peace activist. I chained myself to warships. My work, the work, the work environment within which I existed was really didactic. Mm. And one of the things that I noticed in my didactic life was that people really don't like being told what to do. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, duh. <laughs> and uh, you know, and so now my work is really seductive and subversive. And mm. that's why I think I'm attracted to those entertainment styles because they were so seductive. You go mm. into an old music hall, and music hall, Mari Lloyd was queen of the alls, you know, and when music hall became polite and popular and it was invited to the royal, the royal, it's still going to this day. Anyway, the Royal Variety Gala, I can't remember the exact name of it. Mari mm. Lloyd wasn't invited mm. because she was too rude. Uh. So she set up a <laughs> competition and instead of, you know, the Queen's Variety Gala, she just called herself the Queen of the Alls. <laughs> And her work was really political wow. and it was she was jailed when she went Jeez. to America for not being married to her partner. She was hauled into court and where everybody looked at the lyrics of her songs to decide whether all those double entendres were intended or just mistakes. <laughs> so I look at that I look at those works and I look at the history of cabaret now, now that I know more about it. Mm. And throughout that entertainment history, as one really famous woman in Cabaret said, is that Cabaret, the small stage is always the realm of the political. Mm. Cabaret was often run by women, um, much more so than any other field in the arts. And that I think that's because it was small mm. and it was cheap and it was easier to set up a Cabaret club if you're a woman mm. than it was to mm. set up an entire theatre with all the money that yeah, that entailed. Yeah, that, that means, yeah. So that, you know, smaller wilder, faster, cheaper, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. has always been something that's attracted me. And I think that in my work, that lusciousness, that sense that you are being cherished, that sense that you will be entertained. Mm. No matter where I take you, mm. you'll be sitting at a gorgeous table. You'll be able to do what Brecht called epic smoke theatre, which means that's the kind of theatre he wanted to see. And it was cabaret. Mm. You sit with your friends, you talk, you smoke. Yeah. It's still epic theatre. Absolutely. So, yeah. On that idea of, like, taking it further and these different spaces, how did it feel when you first hit Edinburgh Festival? Oh, my God. I was really lucky. The first time I went to the Edinburgh Fringe, which is absolutely massive, I was invited by David Bates mm. of the famous Spiegel Tent, and he took care of me completely. Yeah. So, instead of doing what most people do, which is go over there 
and have an extraordinary or a soul-destroying experience or a combo yeah. and lose $20,000 or more <laughs> and perhaps sometimes a little less, I lost no money and wow. had an extraordinary time wow. because I was paid for and taken care of and thank you, David Bates, and thank you, the famous Spiegel Tent. So my experience of Edinburgh was... It was just the year before Jackie and I created the Burlesque Hour. Mm. And I think that we had always wanted to create a show that brought my burlesques macabre, mm. which were the wild underground works that I'd created. We wanted to take it into not what I call the mainstream because I don't believe there is a mainstream. Mm. I wanted to take it to the broadest possible audience. I mean, there's work that is identified as mainstream, but when I look at audience members, what I want is a broad audience. Yeah. So I started that my performance work in underground clubs and really soon I was elbowing my way into galleries and mm. convincing various <laughs> conferences that what they really needed was me. Um, <laughs> and, and when we went to Edinburgh, David was testing out Le Clique, which has become his really famous, famous show. Mm, mm. And Jackie and I were cooking up this thing called the Burlesque Hour, mm. which was weird and wild and yeah. dark. And I think that first year in Edinburgh where we used to perform till 3am and have dinner till 5am and we saw a lot of work and we thought about a lot of things, but we also, we also looked for the burlesque hour. Mm. So we went into underground clubs in London. We went all over the place and we didn't find what was in our imagination. <laughs> and we we were surprised. Yeah. We thought, like many Australians, oh, yeah. they'll yeah. be doing it, but they'll be doing it better in London. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. and in fact, what happened during that time was that some of the wildest clubs in London and the most avant-garde clubs latched onto me and mm. have told me since that my form of performance actually informed their entire directions, mm. that they'd never seen anything like me. Wow. Whereas I wandered over there thinking that, <laughs> you know, there's got to be me but better out there somewhere. But they yeah. went, we've never seen anything like you. And that's actually been something that's happened all over the world. Mm. So. When we first created the Burlesque Hour, it was after one of those UK trips and we'd ended wow. up in the south of China in Guangzhou wow. and there was new nightclubs were opening up for young folk and we were at this new nightclub that had opened up for young folk and it was full of young folk talking really excitedly about being young and what they believed in and what they thought about things and there was a snake dancer and a performance art poet and... The rain was falling because it was typhoon season in the south of China and there was this massive tree out the front of the club and mm. it was hung with what we call Chinese lanterns but, of course, to them it's just lanterns. Mm. And they were all swaying in the breeze like jellyfish Gosh. and Jackie and I were drinking fire water. It was meant <laughs> to be a black Russian but I've never tasted a black Russian like that. <laughs> and and we, we cooked up the burlesque hour in that club. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah. What a place to come up with it, my God. Yeah. So from yeah. the burlesque hour onwards, you've had a, like a massive and continuous body of work. Uh, it's clear that you've become one of the staples in Australian queer, diverse performance. How does it feel representing that community or that kind of idea of, of what performance can be and that idea of inclusivity in spaces, as you said, you kind of elbowed your way in, mm. to spa spaces that have been traditionally less 
inclusive of those ideas? It's been a real privilege and I think that my background in environmental science and also politics and and gender and development has always it it's driven this fierce passion in me which I'm completely you know undeterred about throughout my career is people have always told me Moira you are too much <laughs> No, 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 that, that work's not going to work here. It's too much. It's too much. It's, it's too wild. Audiences aren't ready for it. Wow. And they even told me that in queer clubs. So in queer clubs, I'd come in and I'd have this idea, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and blah, 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 blah. And people, oh, no, that's not going to work. It's, it's, it's too much. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was doing monologues at 3 a.m. or doing my, my incredible gender-bending character, Romeo, mm, who was invented in 1994, oh can you believe God. it? I think Even I, first, before- I, f- I first saw <laughs> Romeo in 2012, I yeah. think. Romeo predated drag kings. That 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 <laughs> word was never used. That term was mm, never used. Romeo mm, was mm. just this wild invention of mine. I wanted to wear gender. So mm, Romeo mm. is, I'm just going to digress into Romeo for a little while. Romeo was this male character and he does a strip tease and he's totally laid back, incredibly charming, um, based on a boyfriend of mine, a g- gorgeous Italian fellow. <laughs> anyway, um, and Romeo, you know, strips down to his jocks, but he mm. doesn't lose his masculine identity for mm, a single mm, moment. Mm, so wow. the responses to Romeo were, "Is are you... That can't be a woman. So even though they're looking at a woman who's clearly an anat- anatomically a woman, mm-hmm. they go, no, no, that can't be a woman. That must be a transgender person or it must be – that person can't be born a woman yeah. because they move too much like a man. And oh, Romeo God. was an exploration and a very gentle, fun and hilarious mm. one of gender construction. You know, Absolutely, how do yeah. we construct gender? If Romeo – you know, Occam's razor tells us that if a, wom- a woman is standing in front of you naked, the most likely thing is that you're looking at a woman. That's what Occam's razor tells us. Yeah. But Romeo, because his all his characteristics and his confidence is, is male, is masculine, mm, mm. people go, well, no, that can't be a woman. Yeah. That's got to be a man. So Romeo, when I created him and I created him for a, a club um, night to raise money for HIV, AIDS, mm. you know, he he just became wildly famous instantly, <laughs> including the, the, the second Romeo act I did, people came up to me because I, I did this kind of really weird cross-gender act as Romeo. So Romeo mm. dressed up as a woman, which is, you know, <laughs> a double, double, triple drag. And people came up to me and said, oh, you know, that man has taken your Romeo act. And mm. I said, no, 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 that's me. <laughs> they said, but that was... A man dressed up as Romeo being a woman. I said, no, that was me dressed up as Romeo dressed up as a woman. I know it's complicated. Anyway, one of the things that happened when I first started doing work that I call burlesque was Mm. nobody was using that term. Nobody. I mean, there were there was a, a group of people, a group of women in America using it, but really it wasn't being used in Australia at all. Mm-hmm. And I called my work the burlesque's macabre because burlesque meant a mockery. This is the 1600s meaning of the word, mm-hmm. a mockery, a grotesquery, an exaggeration, mm-hmm. a parody. And there were burletters, which were books that tore strips off social mores in society. And, and they, were, they were operas, burletters you know, little music gorgeousnesses and there were also burlesque books. And they they weren't what we think of as burlesque, which is a kind of retro, American-infused, 
I mean, pasties weren't even available in those days. <laughs> they just weren't. I remember no. wanting something for a performance and people, ah, we don't use pasties anymore. <laughs> They're from the 50s, baby. Anyway, when when the burlesque hour hit the scene, it, it caused this, this wild furore mm. and Jackie mm. and I weren't prepared for it. Although what we did want to do was we wanted to take it to a really broad audience. Mm. And someone we will everybody said it wouldn't work. Everybody said it wouldn't work. Audiences aren't ready for this. It will never work. Somebody we had engaged to work with us on promoting it when I was talking to them about the marketing material said, Moira, don't worry about the marketing material. This will never reach more than a fringe and alternative audience. Oh and of course that was a red rag to a bull. Right, but <laughs> I, just, I wanted it to be intelligent, welcoming, challenging, provocative in the true sense of the word, which is from the Italian provocare, to invite, mm. to stimulate, mm. to arouse. And I was nervous. There were works in the burlesque hour that had never been seen outside a queer and underground club context ever. Mm. So they hadn't been seen in a contemporary art context, let alone mm. a broad audience. And we marketed the burlesque hour as a, a great night out for everyone. You mm. know, everyone. Yeah. Forget your rock and roll and night. Come to the burlesque hour and... It sold out the night it opened. The phone rang because, of course, we set up our own booking line to save money. (laughs) The phone rang every minute. We couldn't pick up the phone to tell people that the show was sold out. (laughs) So every night at the box office there was bedlam. It was just crazy. It was really crazy. And, and, And the thing was I remember close to opening night, one of the stars, so it was me, Yumi Umiyamare and Azaria Universe, and we were this kind of holy trinity of wild women. And Azaria came from a circus burlesque, really queer Mm. underground performance context in Sydney. Yumi had trained in physical education and classical dance in Japan, Mm. but she'd gone down the Butoh path and ended up performing Butoh work in clubs in Tokyo. So we'd all had this club background. And I I didn't even know that about Yumi at that stage, but I was really attracted to her work. Mm. And what we wanted to do was to take... All of the works had entertainment at their core. Azaria had a really old school, an old school kind of tassels and tees kind of quality about her, you know, sideshow, fairground, bearded lady. All of that came with Azaria, really, Mm. really old school vaudeville sideshow. And me, strange, gothic, I don't even know how to describe my work, it's... (laughs) It's wild, it's funny, it's driven by music, mm. it's it's very gothic, literary, epic, the stuff you see in nightmares. Yeah. And Yumi was Hello Kitty on speed, you know. <laughs> yeah. She had this amazing Japanese manga, cartoon sensibility that would then, all of our work started somewhere known mm. and went somewhere unknown. Mm. And all of it was funny. <laughs> And wild. And people came. And I remember Azaria saying to me, we didn't know what was going to happen. We had no idea. And one of the first nights we opened, a group of eight businessmen bought a table at the front. And, you know, everybody was a little bit nervous about Mm. how that was going to go. And, you know, there was nudity in the show. It was all happening. And lots of, as you say, that beautiful old school, every table had three satin tablecloths on it. We had Chinese lanterns from that very club. Oh, my gosh, From really? that very club in Guangzhou. Wow. Literally, 
We bought a box of Chinese lanterns. <laughs> we came home. We received almost no funding and we opened the show. Wow. Yeah. We had these beautiful old cross arches that was based on gorgeous old London mm. theatres and we just made it up. It was all fake, all made out of ticky-tack and cardboard. <laughs> Love it. And Azaria said to me backstage, she said, Moira, she was going out to do her iconic piece, Pearls, which is just her in 12-inch heels and hundreds of strings of pearls to Bonnie Tyler's turnaround bright eyes, which is unbelievably beautiful, funny, clown-like, sexy, heartbreaking, all of those things. And she was really nervous. She said, what about all those guys at the front? I said, look, Azaria. And I didn't really believe this, but I said it anyway. I said, it doesn't matter what they've come for. They will leave with so much more. And so I encouraged her and I <laughs> pushed her out there. And then they came up to me afterwards, the guys, and they'd had a ball. <laughs> and they said, you know, we, we want to ask you a question. And I thought, oh, here we go, okay. <laughs> so I girded my loins and they said, you know, what about that lady in the black? And that was me doing a piece on grieving and repressed mm. desire, dressed up chin to ankle in a giant Victorian bustle where mm. almost nothing happens to Elvis Costello's I Want You. And it's about a, a Victorian, it's about, it's not about a Victorian woman, it's, it's me doing this extraordinary desire that is, that cannot be manifested. That mm. So she's just there. And they wanted to know about that. So they loved it. They loved the legs. They loved the ladies. They loved all the gorgeousness. But they wanted to know. They wanted to know the heart of the razor intelligence that they'd seen. Wow. And they, and one of them said to me, "You know, I'm going to bring my daughter. This is amazing." So that's. I think that's been the core of that work now for 14 years. Mm. Is that it's not prescriptive. We don't yeah. tell people what to think. I don't stand up at the beginning of the show and tell them that they really need to think about this. And, you know, people come to that show who'd rather have their teeth pulled out than go and see a piece yeah. of feminist performance art. And we take them on these wild adventures. It's a combo of charm and alarm. And I really believe if you take people's hands, you can take them anywhere. Mm. And the mm. burlesque hour is now called the glory box mm. because – this gorgeous person in Latin America said to me, this I do not understand what it is longer than an hour. I don't know anything about burlesque. <laughs> but I tell you, it is like a present. It is like a box. Wow. And every time you unpack it, it's another glorious present. I went, okay, I'm changing the name to the glory box. I love it. Great name. <laughs> Great place to leave part one of our two-part Moira Finnegan interview extravaganza. If you haven't had enough, do not fret because part two is already up and waiting for you on witnessperformance.com.au. I'll just leave by saying, if you haven't supported Witness Performance yet, please do. We really do rely on the generosity of our readers, our listeners in this case. So please consider it putting some money towards us so we can keep doing the great work that we do. All right, I'll see you in part two.